The following podcast contains explicit language. Welcome to the Double X Gab Fest for Thursday, January 11th, the Oprah 2020 edition. I'm Hannah Rosen, a host of Invisibilia, and in the New York studios, we have June Thomas, the managing producer of Slate Podcasts. Hi, June. Hey, Hannah. And Noreen Malone, an editor at New York Magazine. Hi, Noreen. Hi, Hannah. Happy 2018, guys. It's 2018, and we're still together. That's nice. <laughs> so I want to say in our call-in show, we talked, we, we got into a whole discussion about feminist architecture, which was completely new to, to me, and a lot of you tweeted at us, including tall women. We were talking about shelves and how high they were and whether they were sexist tall women saying, you know, they're kind of in between and what about us? And you can't assume that all women are short like me, like I'm short, me being Hannah Rosen, I'm short. <laughs> um, so um, I just want to say that was uh, that was new to me. I didn't know about the feminist architecture side of things. And I feel so bad now uh, for tall women who get backaches from having to deal with the countertops that are set for us medium height women. Sorry, tall yeah. women. I'm the average height of an American woman. I feel perfectly comfortable with that <laughs> infrastructure. And I'm an asshole. Keep it coming, says <laughs> Noreen Malone. After we got a little feminist architecture outrage, I got so upset because somebody hung a coat. I asked I asked people to hang a coat rack in my office because my coat was always on the floor. And they just come and do that routinely. And it's like eight feet up on the door. <laughs> so that with great embarrassment, I should actually video, have someone video me doing this. Every morning, I have to jump in order to get my <laughs> <You> coat. serious? <laughs> yes, you know, I'm totally serious. I know you. You will love getting that workout. <laughs> it's my teeny tiny workout. All right. Anyway. <clears throat> on that note. So our three topics. Uh, first, Oprah 2020. I'm so excited to talk about this. There's been so much interesting talk about this. It started kind of as a little meme and then just came lots of serious discussion about it. So I'm excited. Second, it is 2018. It's a moment of resolutions and commitments to our better selves. So we talk about the state of self-help with Kristen Meisner, who is the host of Panoply's podcast, by the book. And finally, the generation gap around Me Too. Are older women actually rolling their eyes? And then for our Slate Plus today, June, why don't you say what we're going to talk about? In our Slate Plus segment today, we will be asking if it was sexist of Vanity Fair to suggest that Hillary Clinton should get some hobbies, including knitting and improv comedy, rather than run for president one more time. And if you would like to listen to that segment, please join Slate Plus. For more information, you should go to slate.com slash XX Plus. So Oprah 2020, this week at the Golden Globes. I hope you guys have heard Oprah Winfrey's speech. And when that new day finally dawns, it will be because of a lot of magnificent women, many of whom are right here in this room tonight, and some pretty phenomenal men fighting hard to make sure that they become the leaders who take us to the time when nobody ever has to say, me too, again. It was a rousing speech she gave when she was receiving a Lifetime Achievement Award. And um, it was a kind of new day is on the horizon speech, which could have maybe been mistaken for a political speech and immediately began the talk of Oprah 2020, which she did not, as she has in the past, shut down. So we're going to talk about the speech and we're going to take seriously and hash out the idea of Oprah 2020. 
Okay, let's start with the elements of the speech because that was debated. What are the parts of the speech that stuck with you guys? Or I, I was happened to be watching the Golden Globes when she gave it, and I have to admit that I was like, she has she has that capacity to just kind of glue you to her. I mean, I know this is her job, but like, I really, I like looked around the room and it was like a movie shot of people watching (laughs) someone give a riveting speech. Everyone in my family who was there watching the Golden Globes was like, you know, gaped mouthed watching Oprah give a speech. She's so good at it. It's the delivery though, right? Like, okay, the speech was good. She said the correct things. She said inspiring things, but it's all in just the Oprah voice, which I can't do because no one can do it like she does you know she she speaks deeply for a woman she speaks like she modulates her voice in these like totally um both inspiring and unique ways uh but when you look at the transcript you're like yeah that's a that's a hollywood liberal Oh, my God. I totally disagree <laughs> with that. Okay. I did not feel that way. Like, I read the words of the speech and I was like, OK, here's a gift. Here's a gift that so few people in America managed to pull off, which is to be honest about the uglier parts of our nation's history. Like, really trot it out and rub it in your face. Give you a specific example of a young black girl who was raped and abducted and be totally inspirational. That's like a really hard thing to pull off is to be just like truthful and inspirational. I get that it's Hollywood liberal, but it didn't f- like Hollywood liberal always feels so bad to me. Like it's yeah, always I so and this didn't, smug yeah. Yeah. and like it's always so smug and kind of self-important and kind of has takes no risks. Like I feel like her, her speech was risky in a certain way. Like the things that she brought up were risky. And yet you 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 leave the speech feeling like things are great. I have no idea how she does that. You know? I mean that's her talent, right? That she can speak directly to people, she connects with people, she is honest, uh, you know, with some uh some gaps in, in her story. She's pretty honest about her life. And that she is an inspiring and riveting person. I mean, that is something that has been established for many decades now. And I think especially right now where we've got this guy who can barely speak and just repeats himself, it's especially, you know, that that connection with politics is, you know, even more likely to be made however realistic or unrealistic it, it actually is. But why does everything have to be about Trump? Can't this just be a speech about women and like you know it can't just be a speech about the moment that she's addressing it to why does it instantly have to become this conversation about like can she topple him because he's the president and it is this very weird time it's not normal it's not normal to have a president like that and also there isn't you know i think elizabeth warren's too old i'm not sure that Kristen gillibrand is is experienced enough nor, nor Kamala Harris. And so, oh, but Oprah's experience? No, <laughs> no, 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 no. I don't think she should be president. I don't think that anybody should have their first run for election be for president. But I understand why people are getting into this, honestly, craziness. Wait a minute. Okay, you guys went way too fast for me. I'm just, I'm not quite there yet with you because can we just break down the arguments against Oprah and take them seriously for a minute? I want to actually take this seriously. Like, could Oprah be a political figure? I mean, there were suggestions she should run for governor of Wisconsin. Like, she doesn't, it doesn't necessarily have to be present. But what is it you are actually talking about and signing on to if you take this idea seriously? I'm not saying go sign up for her campaign. If you take this as, like, not just a cute meme, hashtag 
hashtag Oprah 2020, but you take it seriously. Okay, so not enough experience. Can we go through that one? Because there's then there's a lot of like, well, they just say that because she's a sexist, and you know what experience did because they're uh, because because yeah, they just people just say that because they're sexists and and racist so and and racist, and so they look at a woman who has you know business experience and who's successful in so many other ways, and if she were a guy, that would be enough. But because she doesn't have political experience, then came back Ronald Reagan, but that's like a stupid analogy because he's been governor of California. So like, forget that one. That's dumb. Um, But so then the only example you have left is now here's what you were saying, June Trump. So it's like we're now like, does that mean we have to accept fully like the logic of Trump in order to embrace the logic of Oprah? Like we are full on embracing this idea of just charisma and general success as enough. As the reason, you know, we're just saying, yes, America is a place where we vote for charismatic leaders. That's who we are now. Right. I think that's where the problem comes in. Right. Like Oprah wants to run for Senate or House of Reps or governor. I'm into it. Like, sure. Lots of lots of moguls have done so before and then used it as a stepping stone. That was or or entertainers. Look at Al Franken. Uh, But and actually, if Trump hadn't happened, I bet Oprah 2020 First of all, probably wouldn't have become a serious thing, but also could have been taken more seriously in this weird kind of paradox. Like, because we are in the Trump era and because Democrats have spent and, you know, a lot of Republicans who don't like Trump have spent so much time talking about how his inexperience and celebrity undermine uh, the importance of the office, it would sort of just like totally topple them from the high ground, you know, just be everyone would just be mud wrestling in the reality TV pit. Right. Huh. So you guys are really, you guys are just like, this is bullshit. Like, you're not no, into it. I mean. That's what it, I'm picking up. Well, here's uh, the thing. You, like, she is fantastic. Love Oprah. She does, she does the things that I feel starved of right now. I mean, I'm just so depressed. Not so much actually around policy. Policy is one thing, and, and that's something that people can argue about. But it's the lack of I mean, it's I'm even ridiculous before it's come out of my mouth. I know how silly it sounds, but the lack of charisma. I want a politician who is like those politicians on TV. I want a politician like the guy on the West Wing who like made. I used to listen to those speeches on the West Wing, and I'd be like, honestly, a little bit verklempt. And like, I don't hear that from anybody. We used to have it from Obama. You, I could get that from from Oprah. And as dumb as it sounds, I really do feel like you need to be like. You need to be set in motion. You need to be fired up by a politician, not just in a negative way, like I feel from Trump. Like, I want to I want to believe, you know? Well, plenty of people who had political experience in the past have been able to make Americans believe. Like, all of a sudden, we just, I, I, it just is so weird that we're, we're go, you know, we were like, well, we've reached that wall. We might as well just find a better celebrity if that's right. Exactly, we're. exactly. Okay, but June, here's something that someone in my, in my office suggested, and mm-hmm. this might get under your skin, I'm hoping. <laughs> what you've just described, perhaps that itch could be scratched if we just made Oprah the queen. And like we had, you know, a, a yeah. president as separate from that, but we had someone we agreed on, whether it's Oprah or Beyonce, and and just like uh, made that person. We already sort of worship those women anyway. Wow, that is deep. I um, actually, I'm I'm all for that as long as it's not a hereditary position. Let's bring it on. Okay, June. I feel like you just made the best argument for Oprah. Like if that is what you are hungering for, then definitely Oprah is your woman. And actually, I don't think her thing is for liberals. Like I think everybody gets into that. Oh my Everybody goodness, yes. taps into that feeling. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I mean, 
so that is her appeal as far as I'm concerned. I mean, I think she really genuinely seems to be a good person. She she donates very generously to good causes, not just to build football stadiums, all of those things. She seems to be a genuinely good person. However, uh, just apart from the fact that you should not have your first run for office be for a president, she has does have a, a history of uh, pushing hooksters. She, oh, yeah. Uh, which is, you know, that that's a that's a problem. Recent Dr. Phil expose was exactly feeding, feeding someone. Producers were feeding guests there for um, drug and alcohol addictions, drug and alcohol. Yeah, this, there was a devastating stat uh, expose in the last couple of weeks. I guess the question that that really for me ends it just makes this a an intellectual exercise is why the hell would Oprah want to be president? Like she is incredibly successful, unlike Trump, who, you know, has this this, I don't know, inferiority complex that plays out in such weird ways. She seems perfectly content with her amazing position of of complete, you know, she's known around the world. When I go home to England, people ask about Judge Judy and Oprah. Um, you know, there's the, what, what is her motivation for getting into this bear pit and just, you know, signing up for a lot of abuse? Well, may I speak against our Queen Oprah a little bit? Okay. <laughs> um, one thing that she might have in common with Donald Trump, which a lot of people who make a career on camera have as a quality that they maybe don't lead with as much as Donald Trump does, but narcissism, right? Like, I don't think she has kind of the... Um, uh, degrading sort of narcissism that Donald Trump obviously has. But, she, you know, she spent so long in front of a camera. She spent so long being adored. And now, you know, her her ventures since she left the Oprah Winfrey show have been like a little meh. You know, she's not she, – movies that she's done have, have recently been meh. Like she's not the center of the, of the culture anymore. And I bet someone like Oprah misses that. I mean, to, to me, that's like the entire reason Donald Trump wanted to be mm. president is he wanted the attention. And I don't think it's sort of like in a evil way in the same way that – but but like – I don't think she's actually going to run. I think she's just sort of enjoying this moment when people are like, yeah, Oprah, she's so great. Why haven't we been thinking more about Oprah? And she's like, yeah, why haven't you been thinking more about me? <laughs> I mean, right. You I guys totally... are the worst. <laughs> but she, but how, just to not defend Oprah because good, the last thing she needs is that, but also, no, uh, is that she, she did walk away. I mean, one of the things that has been clear to me in this recent uh, spate of whatever, you know, Armageddon, TM, Abby Zendelman, uh, is that some of these guys who were, you know, dismissed because of their bad behavior just were too old and should not have been in those positions anymore. Charlie Rose, too old. L- Leonard <laughs> Lopez, too old. Like, she, you know, because... <laughs> not, well, I mean, I'm speaking now as the oldest person in the world, but like... It's not not literally that they're too old, but they've been in those jobs too long. Like yeah. one of the reasons, one of the issues was that they were like out of sync with the culture calcified, and yeah. and just yeah, they were calcified. She she you know she didn't fall for that. She walked away and went on to do other things. Like her acting like this woman who was this amazing. I don't know. Do we call what she did journalist? I mean, she was a journalist yeah, obviously before journalist. she before she you know became a talk show host. But she's an amazing actress who's been nominated for Oscars. You know what I mean? Like it's she can she walked away from that, still did something else successful. Like the, she doesn't need the 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 degradation of politics to to get her attention fixed. Okay, can I make my pro Oprah case here? Go I'm for it. I'm just gonna try. Go okay, for it. just pretend I'm like that that lame person on TV who goes on the networks, you know, to try and like to try and like 
like like boost someone up so that we can all take them seriously. So you're Kellyanne so, okay. Conway. <laughs> I'm Kellyanne Conway, exactly. Um, except she has, I think, more children than I do. So, but anyway, I'm Kellyanne Conway. Um, okay, That's the only difference so, is all I want to say there. Okay. <laughs> yes. Well, I'm not blonde. There's also that. Mm. Um, so, okay. So let's say we've dived into this upside down world where, like, experience just doesn't matter. Like, we're just we're just not there anymore. You know, it's like you compare Kirsten Gillibrand and Oprah like it's just we're not in the world where a kind of regular politician can be elected by the mainstream I'm not saying we're there but let's say we're there so you need to pick someone from the upside down world so your choices are like Beyonce Oprah (laughs) you don't have that many choices and then second of all you take seriously this idea that what she says in her speech it's like time's up right it's time for a turnover it is just done what you were saying june it is n- nobody none of you all, you people who have been qualified or any longer qualified we just press the reset button so that's the world we're living in and then i totally agree with what you say noreen it's like the own network eh, or like her movies but on the other hand you could take a totally different tack on oprah's career which is that she has been creepingly becoming more political in a serious Mm -hmm, sort of mm -hmm. civic-minded way over the last 10 years. You know, she used to be just stay away from politics. On her show, she rarely ever had politicians on. But then she she endorses Obama. Her choices in cinema are extremely political. Mm-hmm. Um, but she but she is able to feed the American public some some truths, some political truths in a way that they can accept. And um, and, you know, she she kind of flirted with Hillary, though, didn't go all the way, which to me is a sign like she she only does it if she really feels it. You know? She did she endorse, she Hillary. endorse Hillary. But, but Hannah, she just wouldn't like go on the campaign trail or something. I just feel like Oprah's not exactly like just riding on a white horse and jump. She, she has been kind of putting out political signals over the last few years. But that's exactly why I think it would be a mistake for her to to go into politics, because I think just as important to changing our political culture is changing our culture culture, right? And mm. especially in this mm. moment when when everything's sort of cratering and all the people, you know, many of the sort of moguls who are um, shaping it are, are, you know, pending assault charges or harassment charges. Um, she she has that ability to shape narratives. And what she was sort of saying in her speech is that we need to do that. And she can do it so much better than other people. You know, why is that? Why can't, why can't that be enough? That is so vitally important, you know, so much of... What's the that in that sentence? Being able What's to enough? shape the culture, like not in a top-down White House inhabiting kind of way, but in the way that Fox News, frankly, shaped the culture of, um, you know, the last hmm. 10 to 20 years. Uh, Oprah did shape a lot about our culture in the 90s and early aughts. You know, she she brought domestic violence out into the open. She did a lot of things that way, and... If she wants to do that work, I think that would be fantastic. And, you know, frankly, a better use of her talents and her, mm-hmm. uh, you know, social capital. I think she could really do tons of great stuff there. That said, I'm in the ballot box. <laughs> I'm alone. It's Oprah Winfrey versus, you know, <laughs> Ted Cruz. What am I going to do? I'm not going to vote against Oprah, obviously, you know? No, like, no, no, no. That's not the hard one. You're in the ballot box at the Democratic primary. Yeah. And it's Oprah versus Kirsten Gillibrand versus Kamala Harris versus, you know, dude. Who's the dude? <laughs> we need the dude. Tim Kinn. Martin O'Malley. Shut up. <laughs> Doug Jones. There's. Um, I go for one of those women, probably. Yeah. 
I do. Oh, yeah. do what? What one of those women? That's not the answer. Which one? <laughs> well, we don't know until we've heard their platforms. <laughs> right. Probably one of the non-Oprah women. Yeah. I mean, the other thing is that it's one thing for Republicans who these days not only profess but clearly, truly do hate government to put up a non-politician. But the Democrats are supposed to believe in government. They're supposed to value public service. You can't right. have somebody who hasn't worked in public service as a Democrat. It just doesn't work the same way as it does for the Republicans. Yeah. And she's not going to mount point. a third party campaign. <laughs> <laughs> that is a really good point. All right. I will say that th- I think the thing that put me in the tank was that after the speech, I called my mom, who is oh, a Trump uh, voter, as we all know. Uh-huh. And my mom was like, totally vote for her. Like without before hashtag Oprah 2020 started, my mom was like, why doesn't she run for president? So I was like, oh, I see how this would work. That's oh, awesome. yeah. Of the 53 percent of white women who voted for Trump, I'm guessing like 80 percent of them were Oprah watchers. Minimum. Exactly. Exactly. All right. Listeners, well, let us know what you think of Oprah 2020. You think it's ridiculous. You hate us all for even taking it seriously <laughs> or you're into it. Let us know. Double X Gabfest at Slate.com or on our Facebook page. All right. Let's move on to our second topic, self-help. It is the new year. I'm sure a lot of you have committed to our better selves. Uh, I don't know if I have. I I think I've given up on my better self. But most of you, I'm sure, have committed to your better selves. I did realize that, that this was the first year I didn't even try. Uh, But anyway, self-help has gotten so much more sophisticated in the last 20 years. It used to be the realm of kind of sketchy gurus. And now I feel like it has so much credibility. It's like social scientists and academics and psychologists and Malcolm Gladwell. Um, And so today we have with us to discuss self-help, Kristen Meinzer of the Buy the Book podcast about trends in self-help. Hi, Kristen. Hey, thanks for having me. Absolutely. Uh, So did you make, do you, as someone who dives into self-help, do you make New Year's resolutions? Oh, absolutely not. No, no. You don't? (laughs) No. For those who haven't listened to Buy the Book, I am the skeptic on the show. My friend Jolenta Greenberg, who also hosts the show with me, is a self-help enthusiast. And she wants to believe, she believes in the core of her heart that whatever she reads is going to change her life. And I kind of go in thinking a lot of this is silly or (laughs) a lot of this is being written by people actually who have an obsessive compulsive disorder and decided to write a book about it but tell you that it's a solution for your life. That's Marie Kondo, isn't it? Yes, exactly. (laughs) Yes. Life-changing magic of tidying up. That's my whole theory on hers. You know, she has an issue. She decided to fix her issue in her own obsessive way and now she's shilling it as self-help. So to answer your question, no, I don't do that. I know, but like there's also Hitler, you know. There are worse ways to... No, seriously, I often think about that. I often think that's like the problem with men is that they have like personal issues, but they don't recognize them as personal issues. So they turn them into a kind of international, global. But she did that. She did that. She's one of the only self-help gurus I've actually fallen under the spell of. And now that you've compared her to Hitler, I'm like, oh, shit. She is just like Hitler. Oh, no. So you don't believe there's not a teeny tiny part of you. You don't even fall for them. Like even with Marie Kondo, I did try for one season as I transferred my clothes to roll up my t-shirts until by the end of like two months in they were just like wadded little balls (laughs) I actually do fold my shirts that way I continue to and I actually did that before I read this book Um, and I I think it's because of some segment on the Oprah Winfrey show like a decade ago I think I started folding them that way but um, it's not that I don't take anything away from any of these self-help books a lot of them do have 
kernels of helpful information. And a lot of them are very encouraging to the reader. But I just don't believe in making New Year's resolutions for myself personally. I find that they set me up for failure. They make me feel lousy about myself. I think for other people, they're very motivating. But, you know, we're all very different. And I think that's also one of the challenges of self-help books is that some of them claim that they are providing universal truths or in some cases, this is the, quote, one guaranteed way to blank, blank, blank. And that's obviously not true. There's no such thing as one guaranteed way to do anything. So I'm a little skeptical of them. And I'm not saying this is somebody who thinks that all self-help books should be thrown out the window, though, either. I do think they're helpful for a lot of people. And I do think that they sprung out of a feminist place, which is women have traditionally been left out of medical studies, out of the ideas of what's scientifically normal, when the default has always been a white man between 18 and 35 in various studies. Um, It makes sense to me that women had to create a space for themselves where they were taken seriously. And if that's the wellness space or the self-help space or the self-improvement space, what have you, I understand why that needs to be there. And these books sell like hotcakes, right? I mean, I think in your your kind of schemas, I guess you might say, or the way the what what you do in your show is to follow a very sort of a best selling book, follow its tenets for tenets for a couple of weeks, right? Yes, we follow every rule. We adopt the jargon. We dress the way they tell us to. We eat what they tell us to. Uh, we go to bed when they say to. We wake up when they say to. We do every single thing. If I'm supposed to. Uh, do this or that for my husband every single day for two weeks. I do this or that for him um, to the detriment of our marriage sometimes. Yeah, what's the weirdest thing you've had to do under the auspices of this podcast? Oh, my God. So many weird things. (laughs) I think that the most horrible thing we had to do was we lived by men are from Mars, women are from Venus. (laughs) And I don't think either of us had any idea of how completely retrograde, how how sexist that book is, the idea of what inherently a man is versus what biologically a woman is. Biologically, a woman is somebody who will never stop talking and doesn't have anything smart to say. <laughs> biologically speaking, a man is an independent oh person who doesn't want to have a woman hanging on him. And that book was very hard and it resulted in lots of tears. How is it supposed to help you? Like, what do you what are the lessons that you are supposed to apply to your life from that? You know, like, what don't accept your stupid <laughs> self. <laughs> I learned that I'm an idiot and not worth listening to. No, um, but you accepted that. That's the important thing. <laughs> what I learned uh. from that book actually was, I, I really learned how sad it must be if you were a woman who came of age pre 1950, because yeah. this book was written for people of a different era and who were uh, socially constructed to be that kind of woman and that kind of man and how liberating it is to not be of that era. Yeah. But like, listen to how much we've all internalized the culture of self-help, which is that I wanted you to have a lesson from this horrible book. Like, we, you know, everything (laughs) has to be a a teachable moment in our culture. And I think that you could sort of directly tie it to self-help. Yeah. I mean, in in that case, I guess the teachable moment, it was it was more of an anthropological learning experience in that case. But um, I do think there's always something to learn from whatever you're going through, even if what you're going through is completely idiotic. So what what have you gotten the most from of these books that you've worked on or, or programs that you've done? Well, um, 
this this is really unfair because the books that I like the best are the ones that just confirm what I already liked. So <laughs> sure. So for example, I really loved Living by America's Cheapest Family Gets You Right on the Money by but <laughs> <laughs> by, by this extreme couple who have a bunch of kids who are like part of the Christian right as far as I can tell, but they have extreme thriftiness just cursing through their veins. And I love being thrifty. I love getting one haircut a year and I love it to cost less than $12. I love only buying secondhand clothes. My wedding reception, I wore an $8 dress from eBay. I just love living thrifty. And this book pretty much said, you're doing everything right, Kristen. So of course, I love that book. I also loved a book that we lived by just very recently called Why Good Things Happen to Good People. And I, I so want to talk nice. about this. I love being yeah. nice. Being nice makes me happy. And I have kind of resting jolly face already. And I'm kind of <laughs> smiley and happy. June knows this. We like used to so sit true. right next to each other every day. <laughs> okay. So I just listened to that episode. To me, this book sounds like even more than most self-help just kind of a replacement for religion. Like a lot of the lessons that you learn in it are things that you are taught if you grow up, you know, in a Christian, like, like, like. Be, I'm going to turn the tables on you. <laughs> okay. Okay. Is it possible that religion is a replacement for what those things are that we should just do as people? Totally. I totally. Yeah. But I think that I think that you could tie the rise of self-help in America to like the fact that so many of us don't really live by religious frameworks anymore and humans just need a framework. And, and it took that form back then. And now we are like, you know, it will take this form. But the, this one really struck me as sort of like religion for people who don't want to talk about God. And I'm just going to jump in here and say, I also think it's related to the death of ideology. I mean, we don't, I grew up with like a political set of almost a political faith. And that doesn't really exist anymore. So that's another thing that self-help is standing in for. It's, yeah, I think both right. of those things are very, very true. But I also like to think that self-help is just a part of the American ethos mm -hmm. and the whole Horatio Elder mythology that you can come to America and become anything you want to be. You can be born into this and become this. Mm -hmm. And an analogy that I use all the time is Meghan Markle. Um, I love Meghan Markle so much, uh, soon to be Princess Markle or what have you. She, she and Prince Harry are going to have the greatest love of all time. I love them. But the British press frequently makes fun of her and says, look at where she came from. She was a commoner. She's middle class. Or she's, they sometimes paint her in a very racist light, um, implying that she's from the, quote, ghetto or however they want to put it. That ghetto we call Beverly Hills. Yeah. <laughs> and... I think that in America, we see it as a good thing. Let's say she did come from the background that the British press says she's from and that she worked her way up to becoming a U.N. ambassador and a famous actor who's a multimillionaire who now marries a prince. In America, we celebrate that. And in a lot of other parts of the world, it's looked down upon. But I think that self-help is part of that same mythology of in America, we love that storyline. We love the Alexander Hamilton story. You came on a boat from the Bahamas and then you became a great statesman. We don't know what your background was before and we don't care. We love where you ended up. And I think self-help is so much a part of that mythology, too. It taps into those same things. Although it's more toxic than that to me because it's not like religion. The reason it's not like religion or doing the same thing as religion and not like union or politics is because all the burden is on you and all the focus is inward. It's right. not at all commu communal. It's just like you as an individual, first of all, have this assumption that there are two selves and that there's a better one and that you have to constantly be in search of that better one. I don't know. Something about it seems like very self-focused. Um, 
I don't know. But you know what? The whole idea to be self-focused, though. The whole idea is to like even even when good things happen to good people. That's like the ill of our country is this is like incessant like spend all your time like thinking about yourself and approving and putting yourself at the center of every story. It's like why that has not served us well. That's like left us drifting and lonely. I can tell you that the immigrants are going like no. (laughs) See, it's it's the immigrant response. We're like we're not quite we're not quite embraced. Like that's why I came here was to was for that. But at the same time, like. Yeah, we really should like the government should there should be a welfare safety net. You know what I mean? Like we shouldn't have to self-help ourselves to to health. I think a lot of uh, trends, consumer trends, self-help trends, uh, customer trends, I I think they are a reaction to what happens in the world politically or socially. And um, one thing that I always think about is during the Cold War, where people were so scared all the time, there was a major attachment to the cleanliness of one's home. And what can you control that's tiny and that's in your realm that makes you feel safe? I'm going to fight germs. I'm going to just clean all the time. And the complete explosion of cleaning products and um, messages about women keeping their houses clean, it just exploded during the Cold War era. And I think that that happens in self-help and a lot of other realms, too. But uh, it's natural, I think, that people want to soothe themselves and come up with some sense of safety in the world when things don't feel safe. And it's also like a a cycle, right? Like, so um, Marie Kondo comes on the heels of decades of Americans, Americans just like buying shit, you Mm -hmm. know, French women don't get fat comes on, um, you know, after decades of Americans just like eating shit. And (laughs) and also, like, when did that book come out? I feel like it might have come out around the time of like the Let's rename French fries Freedom Fries. Like, it actually, weirdly, maybe it might have come out after a real francophobe moment. How, what explains Huga then? Yeah. Huga. You just did. Huga. A, you just did one on yes, Huga. Yes, right? yes, we did the little Huga. book of Huga, and we released that episode right around the holidays. And that, oddly, much to our surprise, is the most popular episode we've ever released. And before we even did it, Jolent and I were debating a little bit. Like, is this technically a self help book? And she said. It is claiming that it will make your life better. So, yes, we should be covering this. And it's a bestseller. We should cover it. And Jolenta was right. It's been the source of so much feedback from our listeners. Um, The whole idea of coziness is in some ways, I think, a reaction to Marie Kondo. But, or or to like the Tim Ferriss productivity, all that kind of thing. That, like you have to always be go, 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 like making life more productive rather than just like curling up under a blanket and sipping hot cocoa. You which know? is so nice. Yes. <laughs> Who doesn't love blankets and cocoa? And I loved living by the Hoga book. I really loved the little book of Hoga. But it also gets at bigger issues. Um, I think that was the first book we lived by that in the follow-up episode we talked very deeply about race and about privilege and what it means to be Danish and why when you have a complete social safety net, you can just focus on things like, do you have woolly socks on? And you can focus on burning (laughs) candles. And if your number one uh, challenge in life is, do I feel cozy enough because everything else is taken care of, you're in a very good spot. You're in a really, really good spot. Right. Kristen, um, I love the sort of the vibe that you and Jalenta have. You always have fun, but you have like, you know, really, you really debate issues and you debate ideas that are in these books. Um, And as you said, you tend to be the skeptical one who, you know, can always, but you still find something typically in a book. Like I would say, for example, in When Good Things Happen to Good People, you, you were both this dismissive of a lot of the writing, a lot of the examples, but still found something to take out of that book that was positive. So all of that said, I you are still skeptical, but I know that 
over the period that you've been doing this show uh, and living these by these books, you got a big promotion. You, I did. I got two promotions. Two promotions. And a second show. So I'm right. now hosting a second show. Just got to mention it when uh, when Meghan met Harry, a royal <laughs> wedding cast, because I already mentioned that I'm obsessed with Meghan Markle. So, yeah. So I was given a second show to host and I was given um, two promotions, two yeah. title promotions. Yeah. Now, so does that mean that like how much credit do you give to living by these self-help books? Is it because it seems like as much as some of them are dumb and like maybe even a little bit evil, there is like just being open to new ideas and doing things differently. I could see that that would be a very potentially very positive thing in your life. Hold on. Did Joe Lenta write that out for you and ask you <laughs> tell you to ask that question? <laughs> she did not. It's it's possible. I mean, I think everything we do in life changes us in some way or another, um, hopefully more for the good. But I I have this other thing that maybe isn't true at all that I like to think that I worked really hard and it was recognized. <laughs> I, I don't know if that's true. I mean, I guess that could be so. Basically, what you're saying, Kristen, is no, June, that's the dumbest question I've ever heard. <laughs> you're such a nice person. Okay, so what self-help things do we have to look forward to? Like, what are you guys going to talk about that we should watch out for? All right, listeners? so... Um, the next episode is called The Miracle Morning. We had many, many, many people reach out to us, hundreds over the course of the last year, asking us to live by this book, which claims to be the one guaranteed way to change your life before 8 a.m. every day. I think it's the right, or maybe it's before 9 a.m., but it claims to be the number one guaranteed way to do a bunch of things and to bring yourself to be a, quote, level 10 person. So uh, I am just going to give a spoiler alert here. I hate waking up. <laughs> I do not wake up early unless I have to. And so I really did not want to do this book. And it took a lot of uh, coercion or persuasion in order to get me to do this book. And that's all I'll say about that. Wait, what is the secret? <laughs> just so I know. <laughs> the miracle morning. I'm doing it already. <laughs> oh, oh, what is the miracle morning? Yeah. What, like, is it just wake up at 6 a.m.? Because Oh, no, there's a 10 step program you have to do every morning once you wake up. Yeah. Oh. Will it mean that I have to get up earlier to do it? A lot earlier. Okay. June, lot it's earlier. 10 steps. It's 10. <laughs> you have to do 10 whole things in the morning. That's oh, actually, it might just be six steps. Sorry. It's, it's, it's a multiple steps. steps. It's I just bunch. can't. You know what? So many of these books have like a quick blank step program. And sometimes the blank steps are 10. Sometimes they're five. Sometimes they're eight. I can't remember. It might be six steps. But whatever it is, it's too many steps. <laughs> well, there are only about 12 steps from my bed to my coffee maker. So that's all I need in the morning. That's amazing to me. So it's like I have to get up all of my children, get myself dressed, get out of the house and do 10 other things before 8 a.m. every morning. All right. I look Only forward. if you want to guarantee the transformation of your life. Only then. What yeah. did you say? What did you say of what style person? You just said level something. 10. Stuck. A level 10 yes. person. Yes. A level 10 person. I think we can all agree that we here are level 10 people. Everybody here right? is a level 10 person. And again, <laughs> the level you. 10, much like in The Secret and the Law of Attraction, Level is capital L and <laughs> and ten is capital T. So what we're and hearing, I don't even know why. What we're hearing is that these books would be the worst to have to copy edit, right? This uh, would be a nightmare. Yeah, they don't care about grammar. They don't care about yeah, yeah language. No, yeah, language is not for the level teners. That's for level nine people. <laughs> They're, too they like that. <laughs> They're too busy for that. They're too busy. Too busy working steps. Um, well, Chris, and congratulations. Um, I really just even the way you, you speak about Meghan Markle, it's obviously <laughs> going to be an amazing podcast. So congratulations on the second one. And we look forward to all of your future experiments. Thank you so much, you guys.
All right, the generation gap. Here's a sticky topic. We've come to the moment in the hashtag MeToo movement where a generation gap or the suspicion of a generation gap is opening. What does that mean? It means that maybe, or some people are suggesting, that older generation of women are privately rolling their eyes at what Daphne Merkin, who started this off, says in the New York Times, or who openly started this off, reflexive and unnuanced sense of outrage that has accompanied this cause from its inception. Uh, this also spread to France, I read this week, where Catherine Deneuve has joined. Oh, la, la. <laughs> Can you? Yeah, I know. Well, I love this because of the name of the hashtag MeToo movement in French is so awesome. I kind of want June to say it because she'll say it better than me. Balancez ton porc. Merci. <laughs> expose your pig. Hashtag expose your pig. That is so much better. That is so much better. Expose your pig. Um, it's so much more aggressive. <laughs> Hashtag. That's the actual title. Expose your yeah. pig sort of sounds a little bit like what some of them did. No? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> also, the your pig is a little bit like, it's not my pig, it's just <laughs> the pig. Anyway, um, so the first thing to do is just kind of pick apart, is it true that it is a generation gap? And if so, is that the thing that always happens at these heated moments? And just what about it is real and what about it is not real. So first of all, I just want to complain that whenever these articles get written, this happened in France, this happened in the US, it's always about flirting. Like the way, I don't understand why that comes up so much. Like the young people can't handle flirting. Right. That's such a stupid and weak argument. Like that's a weak argument. I think there's some serious things about the generation gap, but flirting is what it gets boiled down to. I actually have a real argument about this. I can't remember if I've said this on the podcast or just conversationally to people, but I do think part of the reason that older generations are so um, worried, I think, about, about like workplace flirtations being curtailed, about people, you know, not being able to sort of Um, flirt in any situation they want is that uh, unlike someone who's 25, they didn't grow up thinking of dating as an app-based experience or a potentially app-based experience. So if you're used to being able to like work when you're at work and swipe for love when you're at home and like going into situations where it's very clear cut that, that, that it is a romantic situation rather than a sort of like traditional throughout all of humanity, like, oh, are we like vibing kind of thing, <laughs> then you might be like if you if you haven't seen the, the our Black Mirror app future um, or experienced it, you might be more concerned. So I I think that is a real like technologically based Mm -hmm. generation gap that is redounding in this. And I also think there's an issue, too, where um, it obviously is not always true. But I often hear a concern about what we'll shorthand as a concern about flirting come from parents of teens or or, or maybe even younger, uh, but especially parents of boys who would just maybe are worried that they're bringing their generational values and not teaching their kids how to be how to live in the in the current moment which is comes from a place of like wanting the best for your kids but also kind of feeling that parents control everything like kids will figure things out mm-hmm. anyway but i i do understand or i project that this is sometimes about parental concern and about gosh if i have I done the right thing with my with my kids? Well, and another thing that often comes up in these articles, um, it came up in a Joe Livingston article in the New Republic, and it came up in the Daphne Merkin article, is the, this question of affirmative consent, um, which has 
become uh, a, a sort of way to combat um, the campus rape crisis in particular over the past few years. And the principle of affirmative consent is that, you know, at each step in the process of um, of having sex with someone, you would ask them for, you know, can I kiss you? Can I like, you know, do X, Y or Z? Um, and a lot of people <laughs> have sort of said, oh, like every person under 25 sees this or like every, you know, everyone under 30 sees this as totally the standard. Um, I will just say that I don't. I don't. I don't think most people my age think like this is just necessarily the default. I don't think someone would think it was weird, but I, it's not necessarily the default. And I was like, oh, am I just like I'm an old person now? And so I actually asked a couple of people who I'm friendly with who are in their twenties, um, but they're young twenty, their early twenties, and they were like, no, like no, huh. like super super progressive women, and they were kind of like, no, like it's great, <laughs> but that doesn't. So I think there is a little. I'm not subscribing to the Daphne Merkin theory that everyone is saying one thing in public and doing a different thing. I just think that the affirmative consent issue in particular is being weirdly weaponized in this generation war. And I don't think that like the nature of sex and love have changed all that much. I mean, there's something profound about the generation gap moment because I feel like even though the older generation or the Daphne Merkin line, and by the way, she did not make it a generation argument. She said, you know, my feminist friends, people read into her story, a generation gap that she didn't put there. But um, but that um, it's something profound about having the whole way you understand something so fundamental as male female interactions mm-hmm. and the nature of the workplace uh, and what counts as truth, you know, and like what counts as fact finding just be overturned and have uh, have have have, you know, and I think that there, that's where I think there's something real in this generation gap argument, because, you know, if back to my lady Oprah, if what <laughs> she says is true, like it is a reset button, like we yeah. talk and behave and think in different ways. And it's time for the old way to be overturned. And even though in our heads, we all have this idea of old white men in power, it's it's meaningful for women too. Like this is the way I've lived. This is the way I understand myself as moving through the world and gaining power and participating in the workplace. And suddenly that way is just wrong, you know? Yeah. And if you have had to deal with a certain kind of, like if you've spent your whole career working around that, you might be, some part of you might be frustrated. It reminds me of like like moms of my my friends who who were fifties moms, you know, who who landed into the sixties era. So they they just kind of were psychically fifties people, like they didn't really think about working and they weren't interested. And they were homemakers, and they suddenly landed in the late sixties. Um, like they seemed anachronistic and wrong, you know, if they had dedicated, if they had lived their lives in a certain way. And I think there's just like a moment like that now where women who look at this hashtag me too, and they're like, oh, is that what we do now? We all just get on social media and we identify with the sort of, you know, we just talk about without any, you know, truth squatting what happened to us. And and we all share this collectively. And it just feels like I don't speak that language and that feels wrong. So I think it's a it's like a real feeling. Although I have to say, I looked at the every time these generation essays or these big broad conversations we have about feminism come up, I go back and read the 1972 Joan Didion essay about the women's movement mm-hmm. called the women's movement. And and like the same criticism, she makes exactly the same <laughs> criticism and, and in a much more sophisticated way because it's Joan Didion, which is like, why are women behaving like children? Like, why are women wanting to identify? 
identify as childlike and be um, and be vulnerable and in need of protection? Why is that the way that that women want to be viewed in the world? So I don't know. Maybe this is just a thing that happens over and over again, where the old toughened broads <laughs> look down and are like toughen up. Well, it's also a totally radical moment that's happening right now in a mm-hmm. way that I don't think any of us were necessarily expecting to happen. Mm-hmm. And to me, that's where, you know, I see the generation gap the most and maybe I feel it the most is like in my initial reaction to the list, I felt quite differently than women who were, you know. Fighting. Wait, can you say what list? Because we haven't mentioned Sorry. <laughs> it's, um So in my yeah. initial reaction to a um, this anonymous Google Doc that was circulating the shitty media men list that sort of just named uh, men who were who were alleged to have done certain things with sort of like you know no one had to to put their name against an allegation they were making you know there was no evidence you didn't know who'd made anything um, my initial reaction was alarm at the at the way that it was done um, and women five to 10 years younger than I am, I think just had total euphoria and like, well, fuck it. Let's just burn the whole thing down. If, if like a couple people, you know, like, and and this sense of like, um, you know, not just, let's not just call out the worst of the worst. Let's call out everyone. And I have certainly in the past couple months been swept along by some of that, but I also do feel, uh, somewhat resistant in a way that I think speaks to me being like sort of between these generations. You um, think that's general? You, you don't think it's generational? I don't know. I'm asking you if it's generational. I'm asking you if, like in my experience, I have, you know, I found there's been women of all ages, but my world is small. I mean, everybody's world is small, but like my world is small. And so it's this truly anecdotal who have, who don't like this idea of, you know, the scales being mm-hmm. collapsed, um, the Masha Gessen argument that we've discussed on this show before about how scales are collapsed and it doesn't matter, you know, whether what someone did is small or big or whether the accusations are vetted. It's just you have free reign to accuse people. And, there, you know, there's lots of there's lots of views about that. Like we're not a court. You're just a person on Twitter. The person's not being, you know, the person's not going to jail. So yeah. so so sure, exercise your free speech like it doesn't the consequences of it are not or not that, you know, the government comes to your house and breaks down your door. So, but I think skepticism is a personality trait, not necessarily a generational trait. Am I wrong about that? No, I. but I, I do think there's something stylistic in the way that this is all going down, that, that, like, that it is happening on Twitter, that it's happening in a sort of, like, we're going to echo each other kind of way, that a lot of these accusations have begun as essentially subtweets um, and then have been, like, reported out. It just, that that sort of, like, um, just way of surfacing anger, I think, is uh, closely tied into... A generational this. style. Yeah, a generational t- style that's closely tied in with the technology that allows women to talk to each other in certain ways. And journalists and activists are actually, you know, doing kind of a push-pull here. Like, journalists have, with through careful skeptical reporting, actually pushed this forward pretty far. So there is a role. There's a role in the revolution for the cautious skeptics. Yeah, and I always, I'm always really happy when you get a moment like the Roy Moore moment where people do the work in ways that I can trust and recognize, yeah. <laughs> like, that I personally feel comfortable with. I'm like, hallelujah, that's an awesome moment. But, you know, I'm a journalist, so so that's my filter. Yeah. 
Um, anyway, by the way, back to Oprah, because I'm just going to be like, you know how I get stuck on certain books or people or uh-huh. TV shows sometimes? I think it's going to have to be Oprah. So I, Oprah totally gave a shout out to the journalists. I felt so good. It's like, thank you, Oprah. She was like, thank God for the journalists. <laughs> and she gave a, and she gave a shout out to men. Did you notice that, too? That's when I was like, oh, maybe she is running. She was like, and the right. men. <laughs> it's like she wants everyone. She wants everyone. All right, let's move into our endorsements. But June, you have something to tell us first. Well, before uh, I do my endorsement, I just want to mention that, I don't know, some, some months ago, I think it was, I talked about how we were get, going to start a new podcast, El Gabfest en Español, which is indeed a podcast in Spanish. And now it has been launched for a couple of months and is really going well. And I just wanted to kind of re-mention it. Um, it's really, if you speak Spanish, it's a wonderful uh, podcast, the the Journalists who are on it, uh, it's Leon Krause, who's a Univision anchor in L.A., and then a rotating panel of four um, D.C.-based kind of White, white House or, or co- congressional correspondents, including two great women, Dori Toribio from Spain and Janet Rodriguez uh, of Univision. And they have a fantastic conversation. They have amazing guests. They've had like Tim Kaine. Uh, the man who should be vice president. Um, and this week's show, the one that airs on January 11th, the guest is Chef Jose Andres, um, who, of course, is not only an activist for immigrant rights, but also has fed literally millions of people in Puerto Rico after the hurricane. Um, so if you even have a little bit of Spanish, um, you can always slow down your podcast. And I think it will it provides um, really great perspectives. And it's a really fun show. El Gabfest en Español, cada jueves. Escúchalo. <laughs> Can you do the whole thing in Spanish, actually? <laughs> I could have, but uh, I won't because I think that will... Uh, I don't want to start again. Uh, but anyway, now to, shall I do my endorsement now? Yeah, sure. Yeah. For my endorsement this week, I want to uh, endorse a book that I know a lot of people are reading right now, The Power by Naomi Alderman, uh, a British writer who I really like. I really, really like uh, what I think was her first novel, Disobedience, uh, which is about uh, a lesbian... The, the lesbian daughter of a rabbi uh, who kind of uh, it has like I don't know it's a fantastic book Disobedience uh, but The Power is about women literally in this case um, kind of tapping into power like electricity in their bodies uh, and it is it was published in Britain last year uh, it was not written uh, with this particular reckoning that we're living through in mind but Wow, it sure does read like uh, it just adds an extra balance to that that book. Um, But uh, I'm really enjoying it. I'm so excited you endorsed that because books on your bookshelf, it is literally the next book on Mm. my nightstand. It's not really my bookshelf because I brought it with me on vacation because I brought a bunch of things to read and everybody took it away from me. (laughs) So like in succession, like my brother-in-law, my niece, then my daughter, then David. And so I ended up last on the list. And so it's only come to me after the vacation and it's the next thing I'm going to read. And there were mi- they were like arguments about it. So it was interesting. Yeah. Um, the book I did read, which I'm going to endorse, is The Idiot by Elif Batuman. Oh, is that yeah. how you pronounce her last name? I love that. Um, that is an interesting book. I mean, a really, really interesting book. It's just about this sort of long simmering crush <laughs> that you never know if it's going to be requited. It's it's just I've never quite read a book about a relationship like this and you kind of get trapped in her head because what she's actually interested in words and this is someone she falls in love with because of a series of 
unusual email exchanges they had, which are unlike email exchanges any of us have probably had with other humans, and she <laughs> hasn't either. And so, and so, so it's this kind of you. You have to. The writing is so beautiful and sort of carries you through this kind of unusual meeting of minds, which is happens totally apart from the physical. Uh, and then you have to decide: okay, is that enough? Like, can you feel something like that or not? But it's such an interesting book. I really liked it. Noreen, you. Um, well, this is accidentally duplicative of an endorsement from Julia Turner on this week's Culture Gab Fest, I realized as I listened to this last evening. Um, but I, it's what I was obsessed with over the holidays, so I'm just going to endorse it anyway. Um, Tana French. I think I've recommended one of her books before, the first one that I read. I read two over the holidays, and I'm just totally obsessed. I'm, like, doling them out for myself, like... Uh, I only want to read them like I read the one in the summer on the beach. I read this on what I call my winter beach, which is like <laughs> a couch with a blanket. Um, just you need to be able to just only think about this for the like two days that it will take you to read it because they go so quickly. Um, so she is an <clears throat> an Irish um, or American American who lives in Ireland, um, writer of uh, suspense, thriller, murder uh, novels. And um, the two that I read over the, the holidays were um, Broken Harbor, uh, which is sort of an it's both a mystery and also sort of sociopolitical commentary on what happened after the crash in Ireland, like the real estate crash. Um, the the family who um, something bad happens to is living out in a new development where no one ever moved in, and it's kind of spooky, and they're away from family ties. And the other one, um, Faithful Place, is sort of the opposite of that. It's set in this detective's um, like childhood neighborhood that's a working class, sort of everyone is on top of each other kind of thing, and it's like deep family ties and just how deep they go. And I know it all sounds kind of cheesy when I put it like that, but she's such a good writer and she's so psychologically acute and um, really, really good at, at drawing you in. So if you want to go somewhere or just stay in your home this winter and just totally concentrate on one thing, pick up some ton of French books. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you to Daniel Schrader, our production assistant. Thanks, as always, to Verlin Williams for actually producing the show. Uh, for Juna Noreen, I'm Hannah Rosen, and we will talk to you again in two weeks. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.